Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. I'm Myla Kim. And I'm Ed Gilbreth. In these bonus episodes, you'll hear inspiring stories from people of color in underrepresented spaces and learn about the challenges they had to endure along the way. everyone, and welcome to this special bonus episode of the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Helen Lee, the producer of the show, and today I'll actually serve as your host for this conversation with Harry Yoon, the editor of the Oscar-nominated film Minari, written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung. Now, if you are a regular listener of our show, you know that normally we focus on IVP authors of color, but we also want to recognize excellence by people of color in other underrepresented areas through these bonus episodes. And to be quite honest, the Asian American community has been through quite the roller coaster this past week from the highs of celebrating Minari's six Oscar nominations, including a number of historic breakthroughs for writing, producing, directing, and acting, but then to the lows of reeling from yet another series of attacks on Asian Americans, this week in Atlanta, which resulted in the deaths of six Asian women. For myself, I know, and for so many others this week, we've been experiencing and holding a great deal of pain and trauma, especially in places where we might be the only ones carrying that pain. So this is the reason why I'm so glad to be able to share this conversation with Harry at this particular moment. We actually recorded it before the Atlanta shooting, so those horrors were not part of the context of our discussion. But even so, I'm glad we can provide this to our listeners as one way to help us all heal from the hardship of this past week. You know, Minari as a movie and this conversation with Harry both serve to say that Asian American stories and Asian American people and their families matter. That there's dignity in the lives of each and every person, no matter their ethnic background. And that whatever evil is resident in our nation and in the world, and there's a lot, people of faith can create works of truth and beauty and goodness that can help overcome the darkness. So I hope you'll find this episode a source of encouragement and joy, especially if you're carrying any pain with you today from recent events or from this whole year of traumatic incidents. As for Harry, who you'll hear from in a moment, he's established himself as a gifted and trusted editor after decades of working in this industry. He's also been recently recognized by his peers, the American Cinema Editors, as a nominee for Best Edited Feature Film for his work on Minari. So I'm delighted that you'll get a chance to listen in on our conversation from one of the few Korean Americans, not to mention Korean American Christians, in his field. Harry and I, we go way back, as you'll hear. I won't tell you exactly how far back, but you'll get to hear how he found his way into film editing, how he and Isaac Chung thought about intentional choices and decisions they made in Minari that were just fascinating to hear about, and why it's the movie that the church needs right now. I hope you enjoy this bonus conversation with Harry Yoon. Well, 
I am excited today to welcome Harry Yoon, editor of the critically acclaimed film Minari, to the Every Voice Now podcast today. Welcome, Harry. Thanks, Helen. It's so good to be talking to you today. Well, I can't even begin to explain to our listeners how exciting it is for me to get a chance to see you in this way virtually. Although I think I was counting the years that the last time we saw each other in person, it was about 28 years ago. So for the folks who are listening, Harry and I go way back. Yeah. We're college buddies. Williams from, College, yeah. From Williams College. And I have a little surprise for you if you don't mind taking a moment. I know those who are listening can't see what I'm about to show, Harry, but I have a couple of photos that Great. I dug out from the archives. So the first picture that I'm showing Harry is a picture from Korea night, Korean night at Williams <laughs> College. So Harry and a bunch of our mutual friends are all decked out in traditional Korean garb. Yeah, we're, I'm wearing my dad's hanbok. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I was amazed that all of you were able to get hanboks um, apparently very easily. There's like seven yeah. people in this photo who all have hanboks on in the second picture. This was your graduation day. So I got a picture. Oh, of yeah. Great- oh, did you take this picture, Helen? This I is- believe I did. Oh, my gosh. So I have you to think. <laughs> I actually have this picture on my mantle currently. Oh, my yeah, gosh. In my, in my uh, living room. So That's I love this picture. Awesome. I love this picture, too. So anyway, 28 years have gone by yeah. since that graduation photo to now. And yeah. I don't think I even knew that you were contemplating a career in film. So could you just give me some really quick highlights on how you got from that graduation photo to where you are today? Sure. I mean, it was a bit of a meandering path. In my 20s, even when I was in school, I was very interested in film. But I think my 20s showed the ambivalence that I had to committing to a career in film, primarily because I'm an immigrant, I'm a child of first-generation immigrants, and seeing how hard my parents worked in their businesses to kind of sacrifice for opportunities here in the US, it felt a little selfish and a little reckless to choose a career in the arts. And so I kept trying to hedge my bets. So I actually did some work in tech as a project manager. Around the time that I turned 30 was when right after 9-11 happened actually. And that was a very sobering moment, I think for a lot of us. And I asked myself, what's important? Like, what do I wanna do in life? And do I want to take a shot at doing this? Because that passion for film never left me during all of that time. I talked to a therapist about it. I talked to my parents about it. And I made the decision that, yeah, I'm going to take a shot. So I sold my condo. I left my job as a director of product management at a software company. Started over at the age of 31 in LA as a PA and as an unpaid intern on a couple of films until I got some really fortunate opportunities two to three years later, got a chance to join the union on a feature called uh, Lords of Dogtown, directed by Catherine Hardwick. Was an apprentice editor on that, a night assistant editor on Charlotte's Web, and then a first assistant on Mr. McGorman's Wonder Emporium, and just started a career of assistant editing to make money on studio films and then editing low to no budget films on the side, you know, and during breaks and things like that, just to sort of cultivate, you know, an ongoing passion for editing. It took close to, I think, 15 years of like going back and forth before 
I could fully call myself a, a full editor working in uh, television or in studio features. Did you grow up in California? I don't remember where you originally are from. Yeah, I'm from Northern California, the San Francisco oh, okay. area. So yeah, when we first immigrated, we uh, moved into my uncle's house in Oakland and stayed in the Bay Area until I went to Williams. Okay. How old were you when you came over? I was five years old. So I was, I was the age that David was yes. when he moves to Arkansas. So I can very much identify with that kind of, oh, I have no idea what this land is and who these people are. We will talk more certainly about the movie um, in a little bit, but I'm still so fascinated by your own story. I don't know about your parents. But my parents were always very much of the mindset of wanting to make sure that I could take care of myself and be financially stable and all of those things that immigrant parents often want for their kids. So just sure. tell us a little bit about that aspect of how your parents responded to your career choices. You know, it's funny. I asked my father this question about, I think, 10 years ago, you know, when I was in the middle of my career, I was Dad, like, why did you let me do this? Why did you say yes when I said I'm going to sell everything and move to Los Angeles to start over in film? And uh, his answer really touched me because he said that um, he grew up poor in Korea. And so he had to actually leave school at a relatively young age. Of course, he studied on his own and, you know, eventually was able to go to college, but it wasn't on his terms. And, and I think there was a lot that really, I think, affected him in terms of the choices he had. And so he said, you know, when we came to America, I, for me, the priority, yes, I wanted you to be financially stable, but more than anything, I wanted you to have choices in life. And it, it was clear that you were passionate about this. And by the time you made that choice, we trusted that you, you could make good decisions. So I think that that really gave them peace of mind when they let me do something as risky as this. It's great to hear that your parents had that kind of perspective. Yeah. And I think they had a little bit of a hint that, that I had a little bit of that, that desire or passion for the arts. From a young age, I was in high school musicals and plays <laughs> from elementary school. And yeah. so I was not the typical Korean immigrant kid who kind of shied away from the public spotlight sometimes. They're like, all right, so our son's a little weird. <laughs> you know, he's a little different. <laughs> so we're going to have to accommodate that. So, yeah. I'd love to hear more even about your ethnic identity journey, because you mentioned that, of course, you came over from Korea when you were five and uh, would love to know a little bit about how that journey overall was for you. Did you feel like you transitioned pretty easily into American immigrant life or did you feel like it was a challenge for you to come to grips with your own ethnic identity as a Korean American? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, I've been reflecting on this recently because our church is going through a soul care series where we are reflecting on sort of what are maybe some of the wounds that you might've had when you were younger that have kind of influenced your personality and the way you relate to the world. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that uh, in reflecting on that, I, I, I remember very distinctly was I was acutely aware of social standing and acutely aware of social dynamics from a very young age. It's, I'm just, I must be part of my personality and something that maybe God gave me both a blessing and a curse. Because I think, you know, when you're uh, an Asian American kid in a predominantly white community, which is, you know, how I grew up, I think you're hyper aware of your difference, not only in terms of how you look, but in terms of the food you eat and 
you know, culturally, how different you are, that kind of woke me up to like, oh, there's a whole social milieu that is different than what I'm learning at home and what I'm used to. And somehow I need to survive in this. And I think that's where my desire to perform, my desire to be funny, or my desire to be outstanding in front of my peers really came from was to kind of compensate for this sense that I'm different. And often that difference translates into being less than not maybe not physically desirable, or maybe not culturally desirable, or not having the, the qualities that are cool. That was something that I think really motivated me to make up for it in some ways. And I think that that insecurity and stuff led to some good things. But it also led to, I think, ultimately some some wounds that I needed to, to heal from as I became an adult and as I started to interact with the rest of the world. For me, that healing has really become complete, I think, only after I returned to the church after a, basically a 20-year absence. And so, yeah, so really embracing an identity in Christ that, that gives me a, a different foundation to build things on, I think, has been I think the capstone of that that process. And I'd love to know from your perspective, has it been a lonely journey for you as a person of color, as Korean American, in this vocational path of film editing? Or has is it starting to grow and become more diverse? Or what's been your experience on that front? As you start getting into more name brand networks, more studio projects, there is definitely a lack of diversity, especially as I was coming up. But I think, as I mentioned, growing up as a kid with that kind of acute social awareness, I always knew how to blend in different social milieus. So, for example, when I was Key Club president in high school, I needed to have lunch with Kiwanis members, you know, so I would go into a lunchroom at the American Legion or something like that, right? And then have my mashed potatoes and chicken fried steak or whatever, right? And then just be able to like crack dad jokes with 40-year-old white men, you know, an 18-year-old Korean-American kid. So like, (laughs) I, I, I had learned to kind of speak and interact with people who are different than me. And so that wasn't as difficult for me just because, again, sort of having recognized early on how important it is to, I guess, code switch, you know, and, and how, how making people being able to kind of speak their language, whether it's through humor or through a common love of film or whatever, makes them feel like, oh, okay, I can collaborate with this person. Those kinds of social skills, actually, I would say, if you think about technical skills and social skills, I would say it's at least 50-50. And as you start rising in the industry, those social skills and to be able to sort of have navigate difficult, you know, personalities or navigate difficult personal situations, politics, things like that, they actually are more important than the baseline technical skills that you have. Well, we are going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll talk more about Minari specifically and why this is the movie that the church needs now more than ever. Stay tuned. We are still stuck in this global pandemic and we have no idea how long this will take. And so I'm sure everyone is wondering how we can thrive through these challenging days. It won't surprise you to know that we think reading is a great way to feed your heart, mind, and soul. And IVP can help. Visit everyvoicenow.com and you'll find new and forthcoming releases from IVP by authors of color. And stay tuned for a special discount on today's featured book. 
You're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Helen Lee. I'm talking today with our special guest, Harry Yoon, and let's turn now to the topic of Minari. I heard you say in another interview that you felt like you were born to edit this <laughs> film. Was there a sense of relief getting a chance to not have to code switch as much for a project like Minari? Just talk to me a little bit about some of the things that have been uniquely different about your experience with editing this project. Yeah, I, I think from very early on, the fact that it was a Korean-American producer, Christina Oh, who kind of put the band together. She's at Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's company and, you know, produces some of the most amazing content in film. Like they did 12 Years a Slave, for example. And, and to have someone, a colleague that has, you know, paid her dues and, has, and is in that position and has wonderful taste and She's also, I think through Providence, you know, had met with other Asian American, particularly Korean American artists in their own respective crafts. Uh, for example, Yongok, who is um, our production designer, you know, the previous year had done The Farewell. Uh, Susanna Song, costume designer, and Julia Kim, our casting director. Like, I mean, just having, being able to recruit so many Korean American department heads. Uh, and most importantly, obviously, is Isaac Chung, our writer-director, to focus on this Korean-American story where there didn't need to be any kind of cultural translation happening. We all knew in our bones and through our experience what was true North in terms of how the film should feel and look and how the performances should be and the rhythm of the language and what the costume should look like or what uh, the trailer should look like. For example, Yongok, she's amazing. She... Um, there's a scene which is, which is the shot is not in the film, but I remember very distinctly one of the first scenes they shot was when um, Jacob puts his roll of money back into the dresser after he's just bought a tractor and um, his wallet falls open. And in the wallet was an old price club card from the eighties. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, like where did you find a price? Club? <laughs> for, for your younger listeners, like price club is what became Costco, but it was called price club in the eighties. And I saw that card and like, just like everything else on the set, this flood of memories came back of going to price club to get, you know, soda for my mom's sandwich shop. And I was like, this is my world. I, no one needs to translate this for me. I, I can smell the rooms. I know exactly what it should feel like. And so, and, and the fact that they speak in both English and Korean to each other, you know, the accents, all of that stuff, there was no question as far as what was a good, what was good and what was true and what was um, accurate. Um, and I think Early on, we all kind of sensed that in each other and Isaac sensed that in his collaborators. And so that's why I think, you know, that blend of both Korean culture and American culture growing up in the 80s was, I don't need any kind of translation or shorthand in order to understand, you know, what feels true cut to cut performance to performance in this film. Yeah. And when I looked at even the credits, I was amazed. You named all these folks who are Korean American that I didn't realize were part of the film. And I've heard the origin story. We'll link in the show notes to the interview you and Isaac did with the Brem Center, which was wonderful to hear all the backstory of how the movie came to be. It was a great conversation. And uh, I was marveling even there at, oh my goodness, could this movie have been made 10 years ago? I mean, would there have been enough Korean Americans in these key roles to make this movie happen? Or, you know, I mean, you, you talked about what changes have happened in the industry, Is there, or, or would there be an openness to 
you know, uh, content that shows diverse stories that, that I really think you know, the last 10 years has been a revolution that's happening in, in terms of inclusion, in terms of who works on films, inclusion in terms of what stories are told. And, you know, maybe, you know, what's really driving it is a galvanizing that's happening among different communities to say, if we want to see our stories, we have to support them. We have to sort of vote with our dollars. And so like organizations like Gold Open, which is doing incredible work of saying to our community, hey, let's make sure Hollywood hears us, that it's worth investing in these projects and these stories. And it feels like it's that message has been communicated loud and clear. Um, and, um, and then, you know, having something like uh, a film like Parasite sort of win so well in the Academy Awards last year, I think it just whets the appetite of different producers and companies to say, oh, okay, Asian American content is something or Asian content is something that's viable. We're recording this before Oscar nominations are coming up, but I'm really curious to know, is that something you've been thinking about at all, given the fact that Mirati has gotten already so much attention and various awards? I know you've been nominated for the American Cinema Editors Award and all these great things are happening. So we'd just love to hear your thoughts on any and all things Oscar related. You know, I, I was talking with Isaac about this and, you know, our, Emil, our composer, and it's just... It just feels a little dreamlike. It feels a little surreal. Uh, I think we're we're so incredibly grateful for the regard that we've been getting from colleagues and peers and stuff like that. And but I think more than anything, I think what has been just as touching, if not more, is hearing from friends and family and even strangers of what the film has meant to them, um, particularly the stories of. You know, watch, uh, you know, I watched this with my parents and they love the movie too. Or I watched this with my kids and was able to tell them what my childhood was like. And I, I really feel like hearing those stories are what are kind of blowing us away. And if the, the accolades and things increases the audience for the film and increases chances for the film to bless families and, and people like that, I think that's the real reward. Obviously, when you start off in your career, this is kind of what you dream of. But I, I think it, it has already for all of us had the incredible benefit of increasing the kind of projects that, that are interested in, in us and in, interested in the opportunities that we have. So we feel like no matter what happens, we've already benefited from it. You know, if my mom can brag to her <laughs> alumni group about the nomination, then, you know, I'm happy for it. I mean, because like, She's so cute. She's just been like, oh my gosh, I'm hearing from Mrs. Lee and Mrs. Park. And Ms. you know, like if, if it gives my mom bragging rights, then yeah, let's do it. You know, I'm, I'm totally down for it. I would love to just even get a nugget of insight into what it's like you know, to be an editor of, of a film and make the choices you have to make. I was begging them for a nighttime establishing shot of the trailer. And unfortunately, the only time they could get to it was after the electricity had been unplugged. So all we had was a nighttime shot without any lights in the house. But I was able to then use that shot for the really pivotal scene in which Sunja is singing David to sleep as a way of extending that moment where she's singing, I allow her to continue singing. And then, you know, we cut to the outside and, we, and, I, and I put in a little bit of a push out just to sort of extend the mood of that moment. And so that's just an example of as an editor, as you're putting things together, you start to see like, okay, there are 
tools and pieces that I can use to extend time or shorten time to create meaning from juxtaposition, things like that. If the film feels like it's too long, where does it feel too long? If the film feels incomplete, what are we missing? That process of asking questions, of being an initial audience, of responding to them with solutions, that's the editorial process. And it's one where ultimately, to simplify it, is that there's something the director wants to say, and we help them craft the film through time so that that can be said as fully and as completely and as clearly as possible. One of the things that I remember reading in the reviews of Minari is that so much is actually not explained, and that was meant as a positive, that that you all didn't necessarily dwell so much on some of the cultural particularities. You just assumed that the audience would understand as they went along. So I'm curious to know how much of that was a deliberate choice and a deliberate conversation to just, we're going to center the experience of this particular Korean immigrant family. And if people don't quite know what these things are that they're looking at, they'll figure it out. Well, I think when something is good, you lean into it. And I think what makes an audience lean into something is when they have to catch up to stuff whether you have to catch up to plot or you have to catch up to, wait, where is this character emotionally at this point? You know, sometimes you have to catch up to what's going on culturally too. And I think that that's what draws you into the screen. You want people to have questions to draw them into and to make them notice and to make them pay attention to small details. Because I think there's real delight in those details. And I think that that was our goal in in the cut, and that was our goal in telling the story, was when you explain things too much, you lean back. When there's questions and you have to catch up to it, I think you lean in. And I think that what's wonderful is that when people have been leaning into this film, they not only sort of see a Korean family, but they see things that remind them of their family. You know, I've been hearing from so many people to say, yeah, my grandmother was not a typical grandmother. You know, my grandmother you know, was not the storybook grandmother either. We watched wrestling too, you know, yeah. or, like, <laughs> or like, yeah, or my grandmother taught me how to gamble or, or like my parents fought in that particular way. Or like I had a relationship with my brother in the same way. When you lean in, I think you start to fill in the gaps, not only of that person's story, that particular story, but I think you're encouraged to fill in the gaps with your own story as an audience. So I think that, that that's what makes ultimately makes something good and absorbing and interesting. And you make a great point because I think sometimes when I hear critiques about why do we need to focus so much, especially in this current season, on topics related to race and ethnicity, that seems to be taking us away from unity and it's it's dwelling too much on diversity. I actually feel like what you've just said makes the opposite argument, which is that as we lean into our unique particularities, there is something that happens that binds us in a universal way. And I I feel like that's a really interesting paradox there, that, that as you've told this wonderful, unique, particular story of this one unique Korean immigrant family, there are universal themes that somehow have radiated out and connected people who are not you know, Korean immigrants and Korean Americans. So that's been really wonderful to see that dynamic happening. Absolutely. It fascinates me because I feel like why would such specificity evoke memories that feel universal? And I don't think that a generic American experience exists, but I think what seeing specificity, something that feels true, particularly when it's grounded in character, 
that moment when Sunja is unpacking her suitcase for Monica, it's not like other families unpack red chili flakes or anch- dried anchovies in their suitcases, but everyone has had the experience of having a taste from home, whether it's in a care package or in something that you're, you know, a family member cooks for you. And the way that that smell can evoke such emotions. And so to see Monica start to cry when she smells the true anchovy flavor and what that feels like, the specificity of that, the truth of that, it's not the detail itself, but when it's tied to character and relationship, I think it reminds you of the way you relate to people the way that you relate to home, the way you relate to a, a family member, it unlocks that truth and it unlocks that identification. And it's only specificity that can do that. And I think uh, there's also this moment when Yeti Hans playing Monica sees her mother for the first time in however many years. She says, it must have been so hard for you to travel so far. And the way she says that line, there's a whole history of being alone, of being separated, of all of the trials of immigrant life, or, you know, and you don't even have to be an immigrant to feel this. There's such truth in that reading where that simple line communicates that experience of being separated from the people you love in your home and things like that. That really struck me. So many times I would be watching footage or dailies and like, I would just start to cry because it would remind me so much of not only my experience, but empathetically, hopefully what I, you know, was intuiting of my parents' experience. How have your parents responded to the movie? Because of COVID, we wanted to be extra safe. You know, my dad has some health conditions and stuff, which makes them especially vulnerable. Thankfully now they're vaccinated. So praise God. But the time when it came out, I, unfortunately, I just had to sort of talk them through opening up a link on their computer to watch <laughs> a screener of it. And they sort of right. it around their iMac together at the desk yeah. and watch it. But yeah, and then they called me afterwards and they were so moved and so proud. And, and um, you know, it, it really felt like a watershed moment for us just because I think I personally, this was the kind of story that I had always dreamed of working on to through the work to be able to honor who they were and uh, the story of that first generation, to have them to be able to see that, see it and to feel seen was, um, was an incredible moment. You're a man of faith as well as Isaac. And, and I just was curious to know how much you were able to talk about how much Uh, or whether to include explicit Christian symbolism and references in the movie. There was actually even more. There was a kind of magical real aspect, which we, I think Isaac shot some of, but wasn't quite there. Like Jacob talks about the farm and that land being eaten, you know, but I think we only, I think stayed with the things that felt ultimately organic to what was working in the film. And this was this, sense of this family story and how they're relating to each other and how they're intuiting, you know, what's going on with each other and ultimately how they are both the sort of the brokenness and the salvation for each other, which which is true of all of us. So that's kind of the heart of the film. But the other thing that we were careful to do, I think, was to not make faith caricatured in any way. For example, Paul is a really great example of that, where he's 
kind of idiosyncratic and definitely sort of far afield of how he practices his faith. And for some people, when he starts praying in tongues, they're just like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? And they become a little bit afraid of him. And, you know, it's just, it's so fascinating because like, I've heard so many people say like, yeah, when I first you know, saw Paul, I thought he was going to sabotage the farm. That kind of behavior can be, for some people, be so alienating. But ultimately, we wanted to show the complexity and the nuance and the depth of each individual within the story. And when you get to that moment where Paul is, he's looking up at the sky after the crops have started growing, and, you know, he just sort of raises his hand, you know, in a sign of gratitude I really, we wanted to dignify that moment to say, this is, this is faith, you know, this, it can feel alienating, but it can also be this really beautific thing. It can also be this really thoughtful, poignant thing. And so I think, I think what governed Isaac's vision of how he wanted people portrayed is that even the people who are maybe racially insensitive at the church, they're shown in their complexity, right? Like those interactions are not just one thing. You know, the same kid who says, why is your face so flat, becomes David's best friend, you know, and, and invites him over for a sleepover. Like, I think that was the guiding principle that Isaac had was to show that parents aren't just parents, they're people and people who you think might be particular caricature are complex and deep and nuanced. And I think that that's ultimately comes from a desire to show the uh, image of God in all the characters, the Imago Dei is to say that it's worth, it's worthwhile for us to sort of dig deeper and to see past our assumptions and see worth and beauty and dignity in um, everyone. Absolutely. The first time I saw the the moment when Johnny says to to David, why is your face so flat? And when <laughs> Anne's friend starts doing the ching chong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. I can just I can just see where all this is going. And you yeah. all surprised me. I had to feel even a sense of conviction of where my immediate yeah. instinct was to go, is yeah. to just start to castigate these white Southern right. believers and put them in a box. And I, I love that you challenged me mm-hmm. to say, wait a minute. Yes, exactly what you just said. The nuance and the complexity and the beauty that's in each one of us. And I feel like that's such a needed message today, especially in the church. Like when I when I think of American Christianity. I don't think this beautiful picture where we are all giving each other grace and we are able to look at one another with that sense of respecting the Imago Dei. I feel like, and I am guilty of this too, of of being inclined to say, okay, you're a Southern Christian from the Bible Belt and you are conservative in these ways and we probably don't agree in these ways. And I felt like what Minari did in part was to challenge my assumptions. And that was a good thing. That's wonderful to hear. That's wonderful to hear. And I think that one of the things that Minari tries to do is to say, people are, people are complex. Their motivations can be good, and yet they can still be broken. Both the mother and the father could have good intentions, and yet they're not aligned. I really feel like you get that sense of separating that brokenness from people, as well as a sense that when you see that complexity, it gives you a sense of humility and appreciation for the relationship. How important is the relationship, however difficult and challenging it can be, 
you know, that sense of family with your brother or sister, with your parents, with your son or daughter, that is at heart so important and so valuable. And I think that's something that all of us can identify with. And if we want to even extend that to this idea of what does it mean to be family of God together? What does it mean that we are all so different and yet we are one body? <laughs> Somehow we have to figure out a way to get along. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and to sort of be able to say, okay, beyond what I understand in this person's role or my assumptions about them, who are they? And, and they must be as infinitely complex as I am. Well, Harry, I would love to keep talking, but I want to be mindful of your time. I would love for you just to give those who are listening a sense of what you're doing now and how they can find out more about you. Sure. I am now working on another feature. It's a kind of a departure from Minetti. It's a, it's a Marvel film. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm one of the editors on a, a film coming out called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Oh, and, of course. Yes, with Simu Liu. Yeah. Yes. So it's be the first uh, Asian American superhero in the MCU. So we're very so excited. excited. About that. Oh, I didn't know you were working on that project. That's yeah. awesome. I'm feeling very, very blessed. Um, and, uh, and the other thing that I'm doing is I'm uh, serving as a, uh, we're calling it an evangelist for a a site called sidetime.com. It was a site founded by my friend Robert, and I had the privilege of sort of recruiting a number of film experts, so directors, producers, writers, actors, editors, etc., who are willing to talk to people on the phone about how to get started in their careers or advice that they might have. And so we have a website that makes that more accessible for people that don't know people in Hollywood. Ah, so. nice. We will make sure we link to that in the show notes as well. So okay. that's all super exciting. Harry, it was such a delight to speak with you. I'm so grateful for your time and your amazing work on Minari. You and the rest of the folks who are all involved in this project have given us an amazing gift. And we wish you every success with all your future endeavors. Thank you, Helen. It was so great talking to you again. <laughs> and now for our listeners, we have a special offer for you in honor of our conversation with Harry. You can use the code EVN40 at our website, everyvoicenow.com to get 40% off and free U.S. shipping on all the books you see there on that page, plus the wonderful book, Movies Are Prayers, by Josh Larson. If you love the movies and you want to read a great book that integrates Christian faith and a love for film, this is the book for you, so check it out. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the Every Voice Now podcast. Our producer is yours truly, Helen Lee. Our sound engineer is Jonathan Clausen. And our regular hosts are Myla Kim and Ed Gilbreth, who you'll hear again in season two. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would share it and check out all of our previous conversations from season one. And stay tuned for the next season of Every Voice Now. <laughs>